So as I mentioned, we do begin a crucial transition this evening in our study. We've spent the first eight weeks discussing the history, the reliability, and the preservation of God's Word. Now this is important because we've discussed over and over this year that there is indeed a place for historical reasoning, right? And talking about the credibility of the facts of why we can say the New Testament is the most um, reliable work of antiquity and why we can say the Apocrypha is not to be considered inspired, though it can be beneficial to read in some regards. Why we can look at the Old Testament and say this wasn't just made up. Why we can have confidence that Moses, who was generations removed from Adam and Eve, can quote with clarity and preciseness and without error what took place. So there's, there's a place for all of these arguments and discussions, but we've also made it a point to be very intentional of reminding you throughout this year that those discussions do not produce faith. You do not produce conversions by defeating people in debates about facts and logic and reason. Now... They can have their place. They can be helpful. They can be a good groundwork in heading into the right direction or, or showing people error in their worldview or their line of thinking. But that is just the beginning. None of this produces faith. And so we'll spend the remainder of this semester discussing a number of things about faith. We begin tonight discussing the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. And then we're going to move into 2 Corinthians and, and talk about how faith is a gift from God, given by the Holy Spirit. We know this and we receive this from the Word of God. And then finally, we'll discuss at the end of the semester how the Word of God is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. So in our discussion tonight, I want to begin briefly by explaining what I mean when I say the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. What does that mean? Well, authenticate is... Proving something to be real, right? Proving something to not be fake. So when you talk about authenticating the word of God, we're asking ourselves, how do we authenticate that the word of God is indeed the word of God? And the argument is that the Bible is self-authenticating. It reveals in itself, in its character, in its words, in its nature. nature it authenticates itself. So we're going to break it down into four parts that are going to be crucial to, de- to not only define this, but to show why we believe that it is indeed self-authenticating. Four parts. It will not be an exhaustive approach or discussion on this topic, just like every single week has been kind of a foundation and overview. Uh, we're moving fast, obviously, so if you want more of an exhaustive approach, I have plenty of resources that I can recommend, or we can even have further discussions, or you can stay for small groups and talk about those things then. Before we get to point one and start this evening with our topic, I want to remind you again, since we are beginning, transitioning into our second part of the year, I want to remind you of our goal for this year. What what is our goal? What are we working towards? And it is this. We want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. That's our goal. So let's begin. Number one, in the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. And Heather's got it back there. You'll see each point as well. Number one, read it with me. The ultimate authority and affirmation of the truth of God's Word is dependent upon the Word. 
The ultimate authority and affirmation of the truth of God's word is dependent upon the word of God. We've discussed for several weeks the roles of councils, synods. We've looked at the Reformation. We've talked about the preservation of the word. We've looked at the dangers of false gospels, the false teachers, sufferings. But the reason we begin tonight with this point is because it is important to know that none of these things are what authenticate or affirm that the word of God is the word of God. None of them. It's important to understand that if the Bible is indeed our only source of truth, because it is the very essence of truth, then no fallible external source can be the final say over its reliability and truth. In other words, if the canon bears the very authority of God, to what other standard could it appeal to justify itself? If this is absolute truth, how could we look at anything else that is not absolute truth to verify that this is absolute truth? Does the church determine, like the Roman Catholic Church says, that this is truth? Well, the church is fallible. And if the church has that authority, then should Scripture submit to the church? Well, of course not. What about government? Does government, do they have the power and the decisiveness, the absolute truth to declare whether or not this is truth or not? No. Does the individual? No. Hebrews 6.13 even shows us that even when God swore, He swore by Himself. When God made a promise, He made a promise according to Himself. For the canon of Scripture, for the Word of God to be the Word of God, it has to be self-authenticating. It has to be. John Calvin tells us that God alone is a fit witness of Himself in His Word. God alone is a fit witness Scripture must be believed on its own account, not on the account of something else. Scripture's authority with respect to itself depends on Scripture. Or to put this more plainly, if we try to validate authority by appealing to some other authority, then we've just shown that it is not really the ultimate authority. Do you follow me? There's a chewy types of stuff. If I claim, again, to make it abundantly clear, if I claim that this is the ultimate authority, and then I go to all of Mike's book on his Kindle to show that this is ultimate authority before I believe in it, then I've just proven this is an ultimate authority. Because I have to look somewhere else. Now, Christians should not shy away from this. We do this thing called Atheist Day with our youth. Right? Yeah, Zach's laughing because he's been there. He's failed miserably too. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We do Atheist Dave, so I'll walk out of the room, I come back in, and I, I say, hey, thanks for reminding me of your youth group today, I'm excited to be here, as you guys know, I don't believe in God, but I'm willing to have a conversation about it, so talk to me about why you believe what you believe. And then they try to have an apologetics conversation with me for the next 30 to 45 minutes. And it was always interesting, wasn't it, Zach? But it, but it was helpful too, wasn't it? And Steph, you know as well, because you've been in there for those conversations. So we had Juice come one week. He's an apologetics nut. So we had Juice come in so he could be the one to debate with me. So I could be an atheist and he could be a Christian based on the word of God. And we would have a debate in front of the youth so they could kind of see some of Juice's tactics, things like that. And what I kept saying to Juice as he kept quoting scripture to me is saying, your argument doesn't mean anything to me because I reject that the Bible is the word of God. And every time I would say this, Juice would respond to scripture. <laughs> And I go, you don't understand. What you're saying to me means nothing to me because I reject it. And he would respond to scripture. 
as he was supposed to do. When we finished, we talked and we asked the youth, why did Jews always do this? And it was because this, as Christians, the moment we decide to back up our faith with some kind of final point that isn't the word of God is the moment that our worldview has indeed crumbled. Because now we've appealed, oh, the word of God isn't working for you, so let me give you something else that will finally convince you. But nothing else convinces except the Holy Spirit through the word of God. So Christians should not shy away from the fact that, yes, I keep going back to Scripture because it is a foundation for ultimate authority. And by the way, it is the only solid foundation. And this is crucial, especially as we're accomplishing our goal of moving towards the spring semester and cultivating a biblical worldview. Because the moment we try to defend the ultimate authority of the Word of God with things outside the Word, we, com- we become completely contradictory in our own worldview. Historical reasoning has its place. Yes, it is relevant. It's reasonable to discuss the New Testament and its reliability and its history. Talk about the fulfilled prophecies. Absolutely. If you want to discuss the archaeological digs and finds and how God's word has been preserved, that's all great and dandy. But do not think that these outside sources are what have final say or ultimate authority over God's word. God in his grace has given us means to search and to discover these things, but they're secondary in our understanding of God's word as ultimate truth. Now, many people will say this is a circular argument because it's an issue. You can't validate something with itself. Of course it's going to validate itself, right? And so they say you're... they'll, They'll look at Christians in their worldview by saying, well... Uh, absolute truth is the word of God, so therefore all my arguments are the word of God. And they're going to say, well, I reject the word of God. Why do you believe it? Well, because the word of God says it. And they're going to say exactly. So it's like a circular argument. It makes no sense. But here's the problem. Every person who has a claim to absolute truth, which people all do, whether they admit it or not, something is an absolute truth in their life. Even people who say, that's not brick. That is, that wall is made of flowers. Because they say truth is relevant and ever-changing. Well, that's an absolute truth. (laughs) You're basing that on an absolute truth that things can be changing and can be relevant. So everybody has a claim to some sort of uh, absolute truth. Think about the atheists. Here's why the circular argument isn't a problem for Christians. The atheist who rejects God based on logic and reason is basing his argument of absolute truth on logic and reason. They're doing the same thing. They're basing their argument of what they believe on what they believe. However, a Christian worldview is the only world worldview that does not fall into shambles. Take the atheist ex- example again. Who will make the atheist will make a claim of what is right and what is wrong. We have this with Bob at Planned Parenthood. He tells us all the time he believes in autonomy and freedom, right? And that society can determine what is right and what is wrong. And so we say to Bob, well. So if society says that something is good, we should all say, okay, yes, it's good. Yes. Well, what about Nazi Germany? Well, they were wrong. But the society didn't say so. What about slavery in America? Well, they were wrong. The society didn't say so at that point. So you're, you're now falling in your worldview. It's ever changing. In other words, what do you base right and wrong on? These societies got it wrong. So in this worldview, I ask again, what is right? What is wrong? And who gets to determine what is right and wrong? And think about the atheist again. If we all evolved from fish, we all came from protoplasm, right? Just a bunch of cells, then life is meaningless, and who cares about right and wrong? 
Because what is right for you might be wrong for me. What's right for me might be wrong for you. But who are, why are you all of a sudden their standard of ultimate truth? If we both came from fish, right? Life is meaningless. It's purpose. There is no foundation. This is why, again, that that worldview falls into shambles. And the Christian worldview, again, based on the word of God, authenticated by the word of God, does not crumble, but rather stands tall about everything else because this is what declares what is right and wrong. And this has divine implications and a divine character and nature and words and what it says of itself and how the Holy Spirit works through the word of God. It's unlike any other writing in the entire world because it is very much the word of God, the breath of God. Now, many people believe these things. Many people would say, yeah, I agree with your analysis that the ultimate authority affirmation of the truth of God's word is dependent upon the word. They would agree with that, but they could still reject Christ. They could still reject God's word as authoritative or ultimate truth for us today. And the reason is because these things in and of themselves do not produce faith, just like what we've been talking about. So this leads us to number two. Let's read number two together this evening. Here we go. The Bible claims to be absolute truth and the very word of God. What does the Bible say about itself? This is the second part of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Number one, we look to the Scripture and no other source to be the ultimate claim. So now, we, number two, what does it say about itself? Well, let's begin in the Old Testament. The Psalms declare the authority and power of the Word of God. In chapter 19, beginning in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is what? You know? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119 is one of the strongest chapters in the Bible about the Bible. And verse 89 tells us something powerful about the Word of God. It says this, Forever, say forever. Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Fixed, unchangeable, unmoving, unshakable. And then verse 160 in Psalm 119 says this, The sum, the totality, the entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So take Psalm 119. It tells us that God's word is truth and that it is firmly fixed in the heavens forever. This brings great power when you then look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 through 35, which says this. God's dominion, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because he's the ultimate authority. Therefore, if he's the ultimate authority, his word, what he speaks, is ultimate truth. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, joins in this discussion and says this, that every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. But what about Jesus and the apostles? What do they say about the word of God? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, is said, to, said by Jesus to be speaking of Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 46 through 47, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
Jesus also quoted Moses multiple times in all the Gospels. And in all of his dealings, it is clear that he considered what Moses' writings were to be Scripture, the very Word of God. In fact, when Jesus, is re- when Jesus is rebuking Satan in the wilderness with Scripture, defeating Satan with Scripture, he quotes Moses. Jesus also affirms the prophet Isaiah. This is a big one for the authority of the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, Jesus came to Nazareth. You know the story where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. So he's in front of the church. He's standing up to read in the synagogue. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus still. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture, Isaiah, has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not only is he affirming that it is scripture, he's saying, I fulfilled this scripture. And you remember... The scrolls laid up in the temple were into three sections, right? So to affirm Isaiah would be to affirm what? All the prophets. To affirm the Psalms, which Jesus did and quoted uh, in many Gospels more than others, would be to affirm what? All the writings. To affirm Moses would be to affirm all the law. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. The pastor says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the what? Prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by whom? His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is important. He is the radiance. We're going to read this in two weeks. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You can see how Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature holding the universe together by the word of power in John chapter 17. It's the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says, beginning in verse 4 to the Father, this is important, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, this is important, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is saying to the Father, I've glorified you on earth, And I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what was the work that God gave him to do? Well, you see in verse 8 the answer. In verse 8 he says to the Father, For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they've received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And believe that you sent me. He says it again in verse 14 that he has given us his word. And in verse 17, he then asks the Father to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 1 tells us that this word is Christ. John 17 says Jesus, the word, had glory with the Father before the foundations of the world. Well, this now makes sense. That the word is forever fixed in the heavens. And every word of God proves true. He's fulfilled the prophecies. He said, I've 
accomplished what you've sent me to do. I've given them your word. Now sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now for everyone in Jesus who thought he was trying to abolish the law, he speaks out in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 18. He, he did not come to rid us of the Old Testament. Many people live today as if the Old Testament is the authority or the New Testament is the authority and they reject the others. It's simply not the case. There's complete ignorance in their study of the Word of God if that's what you believe. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? But to what? You know what? I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but what? To fulfill them. Just making sure you're awake. Thank you, Beth. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passed away, not an iota, not a dot, or not a jot or a tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why? Because Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. Now the jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle is the small horn or projection that distinguishes consonants of similar form from each other. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I've come to fulfill every tiny speck of the word. Now, if you read this passage in Matthew 5, and you've, you've been here for the last eight weeks, you all of a sudden go, every jot and tittle. Oh, now do you remember the priests who would be copying the manuscripts? Right? They took such tedious care. And if they had more than so many mistakes, they had to destroy the whole thing. If even two letters were touching each other, they had to ruin the whole thing. Why? Why is this important? Because every jot and tittle, Christ will fulfill, and every word of God must prove true. It has to be immaculate. You see, this is where it's so cool to know the history of how this all happens. You can read passages like this and go, Whoa! The care that God took in preserving the law and the prophets... Because Christ came not to abolish it, but to fulfill every little jot and tittle. Powerful stuff. Now, this same affirmation was passed on down to the apostles. Paul quotes Luke as scripture in his letter to Timothy. We've already shown in past weeks how Peter in 2 Peter 3 concludes his final letter saying that all of Paul's letters were wisdom from above like the other scriptures. We've seen how Paul says of the Old Testament in Romans 15.4 that whatever was written in former days, Hebrews 1, whatever was written in former days by the prophets, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Scriptures, affirming the scriptures. Paul tells of the difference between himself and false teachers in 2 Corinthians 2.17 when he says this, we, the apostles, are not like so many Peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Peter also joins in this conversation. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19-21, through 21, when Peter says, And we, he's referring to the apostles again, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, this is important. No prophecy of Scripture. Say no prophecy of Scripture. Good job. 
No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This shows us the divine inspiration and the delivery of God's Word. This shows us the fulfilling every jot and tittle. This is why we can say that every word of God proves true. And that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Because even the fallible men who were writing these letters and these epistles and the law and the prophets, all of them were not producing these words in their own will. But they were, as Peter said, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And finally, of point two, the powerful passage and commission to Timothy that Paul gives in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul says this, As for you, continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if the, if the Bible is the ultimate authority of truth, then we must look to what the Bible declares about itself. And as we've just seen in a very brief overview, right, the Bible has tall claims about itself. It would be hard to read what we've just read and say, eh, the Bible's kind of passive about whether or not it's the Word of God. No, it's pretty clear with what it claims to be as a whole. Law, prophets, writings, gospels, epistles. All of them have been affirmed. However... This poses a problem because we can't just stay here and complete the self-authenticating nature with point one and two. That the Bible must be the ultimate authority to affirm itself. And that, all right, what does the Bible say? Okay, well, the Bible says these things, then I believe the Bible is self-authenticating. But that's not the way it works. Because there are still people, plenty of people, who would read this, who would understand it, but reject the Bible still. Or reject Christ. Or claim these same types of things with other religious writings. Therefore, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture cannot rest here. Which leads us to our third point. Let's read our third point together. It's coming. I think it froze there. It's on the back. Alright, here we go. Read it. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture does not produce easy believism. A couple things to think about here. We've just said that there are people who have heard all these things but still reject God. There's also people who have heard all these things and believe in God. But this is where we get to number three. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture produces a very specific thing, and that's conversion. And we're going to talk about that in the next point. Here we're going to deal with the problem of easy believism. What is easy believism? It is those people who would go, okay, I, I believe everything we've been talking about the last nine weeks. I believe in the reliability of the Old Testament, the New Testament. 
I believed uh, in the preservation of God's word. It's clear that the church fathers have been engaged in all these types of things, etc. Yes, I even believe that in order to justify that the word of God is the ultimate truth, you've got to do this in the word of God. Yep, I also have read all these passages. Sweet. I believe that the Bible says it's the Bible. I believe in God. I'm saved. And that's not the case. Easy believism is people who want all the benefits of God, but don't want to deal with the commands of Christ. It's people who want to claim the word Christian, but they're basing all of their theology off of little parts of the Bible. We discussed earlier this week, as you remember. They're, they're, imagine, right, this is Chris Hume's example that he's given. Imagine that you are, oh, I'm overseas right now, and I write a bunch of letters to Abigail. All right? And I write all these letters to let her know how much I love her and Charlotte and our baby's coming in a month. It's going to be amazing and I miss you and I miss Olive and, you know, tell Grammy and Granddad I said hi and I can't wait to eat your pizza and you make the best pizza. Baby, you're so cute. I just want to hold you and kiss your neck and all these types of things and, and it's all this goo-goo-ga-ga just waking you up again. And, uh, and Abby knew she got all the letters. She had all the letters and she never read them. Would you think that my wife loved me? No, I've, I've poured out everything, my heart, my, my character, all about me to her, and she's, eh. And yet this is the way that Christians, easy believism Christians, go, oh yeah, I love my spouse. I just don't ever read their love letters, or I don't listen to them. I don't just like care. I've got my, I'm busy. I like me, Right? What's even worse, the next problem here is this. What if Abigail decided just to read a couple paragraphs and base her entire idea about me and my love and what I desire from her for her love based on those two paragraphs? That would be a problem. And what if, Or what if she read all of it, but she picked out the parts that she liked and she got rid of the things that she didn't? And therefore, she built her love for me or my love for her, off of the paragraphs that made her feel comfortable. This is easy believism. We have a problem in America today that is Christians who believe that they are saved and are not saved. The problem goes beyond the walls of the church as well. But I have great concern for those that are thinking this way inside the church. I can believe all these facts about the Bible. I can believe all the claims of the Bible, so to speak. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the cross. I believe in the resurrection. But don't interfere with my life. I want the joys of God, the benefits of salvation. Let me do me. And then they kind of go like this. God's grace. Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may may abound? No, Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your election and calling. Hebrews 6 gives a warning of those who have tasted, enjoyed, and been a part of this, and then leave and walk away, and there's no repentance. First John talks about, you'll know that they were not of us because they have left us. Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, I prophesied, did many works, cast out demons, get away from me, I never knew you. To believe a list of facts about the Bible or to simply believe in God does not mean that you're saved. This is why I said that point one and two is not the end all for the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. Because the Bible doesn't make all these claims about itself being Scripture and it being ultimate truth just so that people can simply affirm that and then be saved. That's not salvation. 
This is a problem in our society. But it was also a problem in Jesus' society. The Pharisees knew the word better than almost anyone in their day. But they had eyes and did not what? They had ears and did not hear. They were totally unchanged. No transformation by the truth of God's word. It produced nothing in them. They believed it was the word of God. They just rejected Christ. They wanted the inheritance that Christ had. Luke 20 tells us they knew Jesus was the son of God. They desired to kill him in order to receive receive the inheritance. Oh, look. The father sent his son. If we kill him, we get the inheritance. (laughs) They affirmed. They knew it was the son. They knew it was the word of God. This is how deceived people are. And this is not what we mean tonight by the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, that you can believe facts or believe the Bible makes claims about itself. Jesus points this out to the Sadducees as well in Matthew 22. Beginning in verse 29, Jesus says, he answered them, the Sadducees, who were, by the way, asking, the, the, let me set it here because I didn't put it in my notes. The, the, the setting here is the Sadducees reject the resurrection. So they actually believe in the Old Testament, but they believe that the Pentateuch, the law, is authoritative and inspired, and the prophets and the writings are lesser. Um, And they don't believe that anywhere in the Old Testament you have word of resurrection. So they reject eternal life. They reject the resurrection of the dead. They reject heaven and these types of things. So these Sadducees who reject this, you can see this in Acts, that they do reject this. They come up to Jesus... In Matthew 22, it's also found in Luke chapter 20. We talked about this in the life group a couple weeks ago. And they say, all right, Jesus trying to trap them like all the other Pharisees and scribes and chief priests. And they say, Jesus, let's say a man has seven brothers. He's married and he dies and they didn't have any kids. So the woman marries a second older brother. He dies, no kids. So she marries the third. He died, no kids. So she marries the fourth. So on, fifth, sixth, seventh. And then they ask them this question. Whose wife is she in heaven? <laughs> which which we've, we talk about this in life group. This is what we do. We manipulate things, right? We paint this wild picture that really is irrelevant to us because the Sadducees, it's stupid for them to ask whose wife she'll be because they don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in the resurrection, Right? So they're just, they're manipulating it, and, and Jesus sees beyond all of this, and he points right to the heart of it, and he says this. He answered them and said, you are wrong. <laughs> nice. Because you, you know, sometimes I think we're overtactful. Anyways, it's, it's a culture thing. We have, we have babies, grown men and women who are babies. And lazy and self-absorbed and obsessed with themselves. And they've just been... Okay. So Jesus said to them, said, you're wrong. Why? Why are you wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So, hey, you affirm the law? And he goes on and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac, and Jacob. The living that they're, they're living today. They've been, they've, they're in eternal life. They're in Abraham's bosom, right? And so he says, you don't understand the scriptures because you also don't believe that the prophets and the writings are as inspired ever as the Old Testament. Jesus knows all these things. And you don't know the power of God. The resurrection. He goes on. For in the resurrection, they neither, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
Sorry, Abby. Uh, we, we won't be married in heaven. Mike and Ellen, you won't be. Ellen's pumped. Mike's, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we're like angels in heaven. <laughs> Verse 31, this is, this is the kicker. And as for the resurrection of the dead, he says this to the Sadducees. Have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus is saying, and now he's about to quote Moses. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. He's quoting Moses. So he's saying, in what you believe to be the only inspired word of God, in the Pentateuch, Moses shows the resurrection. So they're blinded. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. They, they have read, but they don't understand what God has said to them. When the crowd hears us, they're astonished at his teaching. You also see the same issue. By the way, you see an important here, an important clue in the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. The power of God. We're going to come back to this in point four. You see a similar issue in Luke chapter 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. I kind of shared this just in passing last week, but I want us to pay attention to this story tonight. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, it says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I don't know why this rich guy gets to wear purple and fine linen. If I were to come in on church on Sunday wearing purple and fine linen, people would make fun of me. Mark Shigera specifically. I'll tell you what. Mike, wear purple and fine linen this coming Sunday, okay? At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered with sores. Desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and would lick Lazarus's sores. The poor man died, Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Pause. He's confused about scripture. Abraham can't have mercy on anybody. Only God can. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime, easy believism, received your good things. You wanted all the comfort and selfishness in your life. Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been fixed. Your word forever, O Lord, is fixed in the heavens. Fixed, unmovable, unshakable. Can't cross, can't pass. It is there, it is set, not changing. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There is no such thing as being saved after death. There's no purgatory, the great white throne judgment where you sin before the Lord. The books are open for those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life is written, and those whose names are written there aren't answering for what they've done in that sense because Christ has already paid for that, and they pass into eternity by grace. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send into my Father's house. So, so the rich man is now saying, Okay, can't come to me. I've got brothers. Send them. Send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, 
They have what? Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let the, the, the brothers have the word of God. Let them hear the word of God. If they listen to the word of God, if they read the word of God, they will know what happens after life. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a greater foreshadowing here of Christ, right? But what a powerful story. Because the rich man wanted his comfortable, happy life and ignored Moses, ignored the prophets. He knew of them clearly. But he was unaware of the power of the word of God. His plea, notice this, easy believism. His plea while he was in Hades was not for Christ. He didn't want God. He didn't want to be made right before God. There was no repentance. He wasn't lamenting and sorrowful over his sin. He didn't go, what have I done? How have I treated him? I'm sorry. Oh, God, have mercy. He cries out to man, Abraham, have mercy on me. He wants nothing to do with God still. There was no regret. No understanding the gospel. And this is the problem with much of the preached so-called gospel today. We are preaching a gospel that isn't about God. It's about you. But if it's not about God, you have no hope. The gospel is first and foremost about God. His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And once we preach this palatable, easier approach that can maybe reason with people a little better, come, believe, pray, worship, sing, close your eyes if you mean it, raise your hands if you mean it, go to Bible study, believe in John 3.16, believe Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, believe Psalm 37.4, that take the light in the Lord, He will give you all the desires of your hearts, believe Philippians 4.13, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but it's me, 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 you're on your way right to hell where you sit there and you say, somebody have mercy on me, but not God. Somebody go warn my friends so they don't have to come here and be in pain. It's wanting the joys of salvation, but not Christ, because you don't understand what the joy of salvation truly is. That's easy believism. And this is not what the self-authenticating nature of Scripture produces. This is not what we're talking about. James dealt with the same thing. He calls, his, calls out his brothers in the dispersion saying, what good is it if someone says he has faith, but there's no fruit, there's no works, there's no evidence that this person's been transformed? Even the demons believe in shudder. Does that kind of faith, easy believism, save? Of course not. If we look back at Paul's power passage to Timothy and 2 Timothy chapter 3, we've already read verse 14 through 17 about the inspiration of Scripture. But he gives us a a, a deeper issue of what he was dealing with and commanding uh, Timothy, saying, you're going to deal with this too, about the same exact thing. We find in in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Timothy, Paul says this, understand this, in the last days, which we're still in, and and by the way, I was reading in my study that this, um, this shows... That for as long as we're still living, there will be these issues, right? It may get resolved for a season at Cornerstone Church, but it'll still be happening maybe at Southside Church. Or it'll get resolved at Southside Church maybe for a season, then it'll stir back up at Cornerstone Church. Because we live in a fallen, evil, self-absorbed world. 
Now, God is making all things new. But Paul here, in, in the last days, there will be these issues, shows us that until Christ comes back, we're going to be dealing with this. We're to preach it and expose it, right? He says, understand this, Timothy. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. And this is the, f- <laughs> this is the first thing he says about times of difficulty. And it's the reason why there's times of difficulty. This is the first symptom, and by the way, I believe it's the cause. People will be lovers of self. First thing he mentions. There's going to be times of difficulty. Why? Because people will be lovers of self. And as a result of people being lovers of self, not lovers of God, here's the consequences. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Charlotte won't be. Un- Un- ungrateful. That's the name of my daughter, in case you didn't get the joke. She will be, uh, uh, she'll be a little wretched, depraved sinner when she comes into this world, and we'll pray that God opens her eyes. They'll be ungrateful. What an ungrateful society. What ungrateful people we are in this room. You want to know how I know we are ungrateful? We just sang a song about how there's a place where sin and shame is powerless. All of your sin, all of your shame is powerless at the cross of Christ where Jesus was murdered and paid the penalty for your sin. And you know what we did? Oh. <laughs> that, that's how you know even us in this room have a problem with gratitude. Hey, AJ, you just won a million dollars. Thank you, Lord Jesus! <laughs> What? What? That's what that's happened right there. What's up? This, look, he's talking, he's talking to Timothy, who's the pastor in Ephesus, and we'll be dealing with Christians. You'll be lovers, you're going to be dealing with people in your church who are lovers of self, are proud, are arrogant, are ungrateful. That this is, we got the issue in Cornerstone Church. We got an issue in my mirror at home. They're unholy, they're heartless, unappeasable, unappeasable, slanderous. We should spend 30 weeks going through these words. I'm out of breath. They're without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Which means they misunderstand pleasure. Because if you truly want to be a lover of pleasure, love the living snot out of God. And that, I don't like the way I said that, but you get what I'm saying. They'll have the appearance of godliness. Here's the word. But denying its power. This is what Jesus alluded to. When he talked to the Sadducees. The power. They listen to the scriptures. They don't understand it. And they neglect the power. And then it says this to Timothy. Avoid these fools. <laughs> Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households. Capture weak women. Burdened with sins. Led astray by various passions. Always learning. Never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the problem. This is easy believism at its finest. When we are lovers of self and not God, the Bible is not self-authenticating. There's no power there because we have no power. 
We are, as Paul says, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is easy believism. It is not the gospel. And to this, Jesus says, as we've mentioned in Matthew 7, get away from me. I never knew you. So number three, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture does not produce easy believism. This leads us to the fourth and final point this evening. Let's read it together. The power of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture comes from the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is the moneymaker right here. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture is not believing in the reliability of the Bible or the historical accuracy or the preservation of it or facts about God or God's claims about Himself and His Word. Rather, it is seeing the glory of God in Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside regenerate believers. People who are dead and have been made alive. Jesus' most important command for all people who are spiritually dead is found in John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the problem with Lazarus or with the rich man in Hades. He wasn't born again. He could not see the kingdom of God. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture is all about having eyes to see. You must be born again. This is why we love the passage. Even as believers, we still pray it. Psalm 119, 18. You know it. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. This only comes through the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says something amazing to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter knew it was the Christ. <laughs> this is amazing. This is They've been walking with Jesus and around Him for a while. There's been miracles. There's been teachings. Jesus has affirmed and confirmed the Old Testament over and over. He's revealing truth and speaking from God Himself. And Peter says, oh, you're Christ. And Jesus looks at him and doesn't say, you know this because you've seen me do miracles and you've seen me teach and you've seen me you know, turn water into wine, all these types of things. He says... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Meaning this, all that Jesus did was not what was the self-authenticating nature of him being the Christ or the incarnate word. God opened his eyes. And here's why. There were tons of people who followed Jesus who would walk away, who saw all kinds of miracles in John chapter 6 and 10, you see that many disciples walked away because what he was teaching was too hard. But they'd seen him do unbelievable things. Then he looks at his disciples and says, are you going to walk away too? And Peter says to him, where are we going to go? You have the keys to eternal life. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
This is the power of conversion. This is of God and not of man. This is why at the heart of all of our ministry, all our evangelism, prayer is non-negotiable. It's why Paul says, pray without ceasing. You talk about ungrateful and unaware. You can't get 50 people to come to a prayer meeting in any middle-sized church in the whole country. Doesn't happen. What is happening? What is happening that we have all of a sudden become so obsessed with ourselves? We've become so obsessed with God is for me. And what that means is he wants me to be happy in the things that I want to be happy in. And this is just not the gospel. We've got a serious sickness happening in our culture and across the world. And it's because of wrong teachings, the wrong understanding of the gospel, and not understanding and seeing and living in the power of God. We look at this and you see in John chapter 6, Jesus goes further. And this, again, why prayer is critical. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And by the way, before I read John chapter 6, if for people to see the self-authenticating nature of Scripture and be converted, it's based on not flesh and blood, why are we not pleading with God constantly to open people's eyes to the gospel? In John chapter 6, Jesus, in the context of eternal life, says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then he says this, The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Look at what Jesus says about those who don't truly believe. In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, you do not believe. The works, we just talked about this, that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. Remember, we just said flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But you do not believe in these works that bear witness about who I am because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They know my word. They know me and they follow me. I've given them, my sheep who hear my voice and follow me, I've given them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. By the way, for people to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, Satan came in. People will say Satan can't come in and snag them out. And, and you can't do anything where Jesus is going to let go of you. But people who believe you can lose salvation will say, but yeah, you can walk away. No. No, you cannot walk away from God's grace. You want to know Why? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, including you who thinks you can walk away. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So in order for us to see the glory of God in Scripture, we must have our eyes opened to this beauty. Look at Jesus in Luke chapter 24. And this is another passage in Luke 24 that shows us how serious depravity and spiritual blindness is. This is crazy. Jesus is resurrected. Here's the story. He's walking with two men who are going to Emmaus. These two men know who Jesus is, are currently talking about Jesus, and are sad because what has just taken place. He's been crucified, the grave is empty, etc. And Jesus is walking with them. <laughs> And Luke 24 says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They were sad because of the death of Jesus. And Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse 31 it says this, And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Later in the same chapter, Jesus is with his 11 disciples. And he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. That everything was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Talk about self-authenticating nature. Everything that was written was about me and it must be fulfilled. And then it says this, but, but, but yes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It says this in Luke 24. He says, everything that was written to me, right? It had, it had to be fulfilled. This is what, if you look at point one, two, and three, this should be sufficient. But Jesus knows this isn't sufficient enough. And then he says this in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, they were able to see all these types of things and know them. But the scripture wasn't yet self-authenticated to them because Jesus still had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus prayed this in Matthew 11, verse 25 to 27. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is what is needed and cannot be missed in the topic of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. The Holy Spirit must illumine minds and eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. John says this in his epistle of 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. I told you it was going to be scripture heavy. We're almost done. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. That whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony, the spirit, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. There's no inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is why the power of self-authenticating nature of scripture has to come from the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 5. We mentioned in the last point That Matthew 22, Jesus tells the Sadducees what their issue is. And here's where I get to my final point about number four. Matthew 22, remember the Sadducees? I said there's a key here that we see about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. They know the Scriptures, or they don't know the Scriptures, nor do they know the what of God. Do you remember? The power of God. Good work. Paul affirms this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. If you need a verse that shows the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, it's 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Remember that. Paul says this. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I hope you just heard what happened because this is a huge verse. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture, Paul shows us, is not just that the Bible has words that have come to say the things that are reliable about God. The gospel did not come to us only in word, Paul says. But rather, this word has come to us in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with what? This is amazing. With full conviction. This is the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. That the Word of God has come to us in Word, and it's come in power, it's come in the Holy Spirit, and we can now be full with conviction. This is the Word of God. And now my conviction, knowing the reliability of the Scriptures and the history of the church and what the Bible says about itself and the circular argument that you have to look to Scripture to, to justify that it's Scripture, all oh, that's nice and dandy, but you know what? Now when I'm in this place where the power of God has moved in, I've got the Holy Spirit living inside of me, I don't need any of that because I've got the full conviction of the Spirit and power living inside of me. You mentioned in small groups a number of weeks ago, Paula, right? All this other stuff is fine, but I don't really need it. It's because you've got the inward testimony, the Holy Spirit, that power. You're fully convinced because of the Spirit of God. And this is why people reject Christ. This is why people don't have that full conviction. They may read the Scriptures, but they don't know the power. And there is no testimony of the Holy Spirit inside of them. This is why Paul, when he preached the Word, And notice, by the way, before I say this, notice the difference between what I'm about to read in the false gospels of today. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that his speech and his message were not implausible words of wisdom. When he came and preached the gospel, he didn't do it with lofty speech, plausible words. The Jews were demanding signs. The Greeks were demanding wisdom. What did he preach? Christ and him crucified. He preached... In 1 Corinthians 2, it says this, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. (laughs) Why? So that, Paul says, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In apologetics that seeks to crumble somebody's worldview and then not preach the power of the gospel is not apologetics. Because no one's converted by lofty speech or the wisdom of men. There it is. So how does this happen? Paul gives us that answer in the same chapter. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 10, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, listen, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This is why we need the Spirit of God. Now, we've received not the spirit of the world, but we've received the spirit who is from God. Why? And Paul says this. Why have we received the spirit? So that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And Paul says this. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Listen. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who was understand, understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. The Spirit of God reveals the truth to us so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So let's just reread our four things. Number one, the ultimate authority and affirmation of the truth of God's Word is dependent upon the Word of God. Number two, the Bible claims to be absolute truth in the very Word of God. But number three, the self-authenticating nature of Scripture does not produce easy believism. Rather, number four, the power of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture comes from the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. So this is what sets the tone for the final six weeks of this semester. We're going to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 next week and talk thoroughly about how God opens the eyes of the unbeliever, all with the purpose of glorifying Himself through a transformed people that transform the world. Yeah! So remember our goal. For this year, we want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and then actively transforming the world for the glory of God.